Hello and welcome to the Community Matters Civic Infrastructure on the Ground conference call. This call explores civic infrastructure, the opportunities, activities, and arenas, both online and face-to-face, -face, that allow people to connect with each other, solve problems, make decisions, and celebrate community. You'll be joining the call partway in. This is the question and answer portion after speakers have already given introductions. You'll be hearing from Sandy Heyerbacher of NCDD, Patricia Sears of Newport City Renaissance Corporation, and Janice Thompson, a public engagement consultant working in Chicago, along with other participants on the call. Enjoy. <laughs> so um, I'm going to do the best I can to get through as many questions as possible. Um, make sure that you stay on mute. The line seems very clear now, so thank you, everybody, for doing that. Um, that's, uh, if you're not sure, that is for to go on mute. Uh, I'd like to, to go um, back to Sandy. There were, you know, you might have covered this, but even for people that came on late, just if you would define or, or differentiate civic infrastructure from network and from community building, or are they the same? Go ahead, Sandy. Sure, sure. Um, I think in terms of networks, you know, civic infrastructure needs networks. It needs efficient and effective networks. Um, it needs, for instance, online networks that people can join and become part of. Um, it also needs networks of facilitators, networks of nonprofit organizations. So networking is definitely a part of a strong civic infrastructure. Um, but I think that uh, I think community building may focus more on building social capital and civic capacity, um, whereas civic infrastructure encompasses those things, but also emphasizes ongoing sustainable structures. So I think it's the the structures and the focus on capacity, not just of individuals, but capacity that shared capacity in a community uh, might be the difference. And and you know, it's just these terms definitely overlap, but um, but that's how I would put it. Okay, thank you, Sandy. And I'm, I'm going to skip down a, a little bit. Well, actually, before I do that, because I, I think Janice can um, offer us a little bit about youth engagement, which was this, the second part of, a, of another question, um, specifically how youth can play a bigger role and be welcomed into civic infrastructure, um, as examples of involving youth or teens, um, and alternatives uh, for youth to actually even combat youth violence and use their creativity. So a number of questions around youth and youth involvement. Uh, Janice, do you have some thoughts on that? Yes, um, youth are very important to involve for two big reasons. One, in terms of the skills they learn in active citizenship, and the second, in terms of their role as models for adults. Um, high schools and middle schools are really ideal places to learn how to be in dialogue and to understand and work with people who are very different from ourselves. In some ways, high schools are the most ideologically diverse spaces we have in the United States. So we see, for example, changes in civic education moving from just learning about institutions to developing skills and things like deliberating issues. We also have um, initiatives like restorative justice circles in high schools where people learn to listen to one another and devise solutions to a conflict, which are skills that will serve them well later on in life. Um, all, youth groups can also serve as models because in some cases they have access to power and freedom to innovate in ways that adult groups don't. 
For example, in Chicago, we have a group called Mix the Challenge that works in action civics. And they've been experimenting a lot with different participatory meeting approaches. And they have the mayor's ear through the youth council. So they can do things that then may later be adopted for adults. So those are two dots on youth. Okay, terrific. And, and a little further down, I'm, I'm going to look to Trish for this one, because it looks like you've answered uh, some here. A number of people were interested in how uh, trained professionals, trained facilitators, outside consultants, um, uh, professional communicators can help with this work and or hinder, as somebody said, or is this throwing uh, good money up under F, you know, after bad if they aren't familiar specifically with your town? What's been your experience, Trish? Thank you, Fran. Um, as I was writing here, uh, we were very um, fortunate in having our first group of experts, if you will, or outside consultants that came in were from the American Institute of Architects. It was with their regional urban design assistance team. Those experts that came in were here for five days. Um, it also goes under probably a nomenclature some folks are um, familiar with as a charrette. But basically what happened was, you know, we had these experts, and they were volunteers. So they were able to come in and really concentrate and listen and listen and listen and then be able to um, give us some recommendations, you know, for um, moving things forward in the fabric that we have as community um, um, members as well as, you know, certainly our um, our infrastructure. Um, and so we had, um, because of their approach, which was just so, they were so much a part of us for those five days, and we had a ridiculous amount of people that came out for the town meetings. They were 150 people at each one. And they had, um, they, um, AIA RUDAC, had come in and, um, they had been at in somewhere um, a San Antonio um, suburb before, and which was obviously had like 25,000 people, and they had the same kind of turnout. So even in this very conservative um, area up here, there were so many people that wanted to know and to learn and to participate in how you know we could be uh, working on um, improving what we have here. So what we really appreciated was they used an asset-based approach, and that's exactly how we operate. What do we have that, tell us what, that tells us what we don't have? That will tell us next steps. And so we have, you know, continued to use that since. And having folks other than, it's like having kids, you know, you teach your daughter or your son how to wash, you know, dishes at home. They go to Sue's house, and they come back the next day and say, Sue's mother told me how to use how to use a dishwasher or to do uh, wash dishes, and it's like so great. And you're like, yeah, I've been telling you that for ten years. So it's you know that appreciation of being able to hear it from experts. But in our case, we were very fortunate that these experts had a real connection with our community, and they came back in 2011. Yeah, cool. Thank you, thank you, Trish. Um, I'd like to come back to Sandy. There are some. Uh, questions again about this definition one. Um, uh, John from New York is, is asking about, you know, how important is it to arrive at a consensus definition of civics 
infrastructure, um, and does it how, how specific does it need to be? Um, and and after the, the the question that follows is even you know what are what what types of infrastructure are in place? I don't know if those are completely two two exact very different questions. But Sandy, do you want to tackle um, those two briefly? Uh, sure, I'll do my best. And in terms of that first question, um, arriving at a consensus definition of civic infrastructure, um, I'm honestly not sure that, that is necessary. Um, one thing that NCDD did back in 2009 um, with our community is that we did an online process, a very open collaborative process that allowed people in our community to set um, a set of public in, uh, standards for public engagement. Basically, they were core principles for public engagement because we didn't have a, a set of principles that we all agreed on in the field. Everyone had kind of their own set of principles. And that has been helpful, and just the process of creating it was, was helpful in creating clarity about what we Something like that on civic infrastructure would be helpful. But, um, you know, so I could see a set of principles or kind of a, a storyline, kind of what would a uh, what would a, an ideal community look like, you know, what to, to kind of make it more clear what we're talking about when we talk about this concept of civic infrastructure. And I'm not sure that it has to have a clear um, definition, a consensus definition. I think very few terms that we use in our field do have that kind of um, agreed-upon definition. You know, there's so many terms that we use differently. Um, and civic infrastructure is probably going to be one of those things. Thanks. Um, and, and actually, I, I think I'll, I'll move us on, uh, Sandy, but that's, that's you know, it's, it's a great it's a great piece of discussion. Um, and, and this, I think I'm going to come back to Janice on this. Before this, there are a lot of questions about good ways to facilitate, um, this Len um, put it as intercooperation among diverse and at times competitive community organizations. Um, I, I think probably in, in Chicago you've dealt with marginalized um, communities, maybe uh, communities that are at odds or, or not. How, how have you worked with different types of communities and even possibly competitive um, organizations? Well, I looked at how different groups right now are engaging marginalized groups in um, community issues. It's a question I ask in all my interviews. And in Chicago, they usually all work through existing community organizations. And Chicago is kind of unusual because of the strong history of community organizing that we are quite organized. Um, this It makes it easier to find groups, but there are also downsides in that some groups don't want to engage on certain issues or they get burned out because they're constantly um, asked to be involved in consultations. Um, in terms of involving low-income and marginalized groups outside of organizations, they will engage in issues that are important to them, but they need a lot more support than other groups, either practical in terms of things like childcare or um, skills in terms of well-designed and facilitated processes. But when they engage, they get a really strong benefit. A really interesting model for engaging low-income communities in Chicago is COFI. It's Community Organizing and Family Issues. And this is, involves mostly low-income parents, and they work in teams collaboratively to together develop solutions to community problems. 
And one of their great successes is they created a community ambassadors program that has filled all of the Head Start slots in Chicago. And that's something that DCFS could never do previously. So they were able to bring in this wisdom that didn't exist through other um, means. Okay, thank you so much. And I'd like to just offer, as far as, you know, our diversity may not be up here in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont, uh, diversity racially. We certainly do have a diversity, though, economically. And this is, you know, a, this is a huge issue up here. And, um, you know, we have been, again, you know, in, in learning certainly from, you know, some of the folks from Community Matters, but also from our own experience, is working with the stakeholders, you know, it's, it's a communication kind of thing and being able to establish a safe place. And so with our community commons monthly meetings, uh, the very first one we had, they were cranky with me because I only brought cookies. And it was, the meeting was from six to eight. So one of the things that came up in the meeting was, you know, can't we do potluck? And it was like, well, yeah, that's great. And so they've mobilized themselves and also in addressing, you know, some child care issues as well. And so now we're seeing more and more people. The other good point, part for us, again, obviously, is we'd maybe be a neighborhood in Chicago because we're 5,000, but we're also working with our neighboring communities and having the media there and present and being able to report on, you know, what's been happening. The last time we had a meeting in April, one of the reporters, you know, um, drew out four different great stories of people, you know, in their, you know, what they're working on and what they're doing. And so it's been, that itself has been quite mobilizing. That's great. And a number of people do ask, you know, are efforts very different in large, medium, and small cities or in rural communities? And I think we're just hearing some of the, these examples as as we move along. So I'm going to move along, actually, to Ellen's question from Illinois. She's interested in what are the indicators of success? How do people know that they're on track for building infrastructure? Um, and Jean actually is looking for civic infrastructure assessments. Um, Sandy, do you have some thoughts about when, when do we know we're being successful? Well, I, I have some thoughts on some tools that people can turn to. Um, there is a great guide by Tina Debachi called A Manager's Guide to Evaluating Citizen Participation that is just chock full of things that you can use. It's actually for public managers, and it looks at, at measurement from a couple of different angles, you know, how are our citizens themselves satisfied with the process? Does it lead to actual outcomes? Does it build long-term infrastructure? Um, but that's, that's more of a guide to evaluating dialogue and deliberation. And I would say, like I mentioned earlier on the call, the, the National Civic League, they have this great resource called the Civic Index. And if you're not familiar with it, you should definitely download it. They're coming out with a new version soon. And what it does is it, it measures um, 10 components of civic infrastructure. It measures a community's level of civic participation, um, how leadership is doing in the community, how government is performing, are people volunteering? What's philanthropy like? How is intergroup relations? Um, is is information being shared widely in the community? Um, is there capacity for cooperation and consensus building? Is there community vision and pride? 
you know, civic infrastructure can be a little bit of a squishy topic because it includes so much. Mm. But in order to actually have strong communities, we need to consider a lot of different things. And the civic index helps to make these things much more um, much more visible to community leaders because you can actually look at these things one by one and say, okay, well, our community maybe doesn't have great ways of sharing information with citizens, and, and maybe there's not a great online tool for people to connect with each other and meet their neighbors and share news that way. Um, so definitely look up the Civic Index. Okay, and, and while uh, while I've got you um, here, there's somebody else also addresses, is there an optimum scale? Uh, this is, again, getting back to small, medium, um, or large cities, but as he says it, um, is it best to address issues community-wide by neighborhood, block by block, individual projects? Do you have uh, to please comment on the relative merits or problems with um, each group? I don't. I don't know if maybe Janice would be better to ask that question to. Do you have a ready answer for that, Janice? Well, I can say one of the challenges we had in Chicago is we are very much a city of neighborhoods, and a lot of engagement right now happens at a very local scale, which is good in some ways, but it creates problems in that we don't necessarily understand the people in the neighborhood next to us. And the um, community-wide dialogue project I mentioned that we're working on is to build um, bridges across our neighborhoods. Even though we're in the same city, we don't really know one another, and that creates problems when we have to share institutions, like, for example, schools. Um, so it's easier at a super local level, but sometimes we need to be able to cross those boundaries and work at other levels. Thank you. Um, I'm going to see if we can bring somebody else on the line without uh, causing audio problems. Uh, Parker Palmer, who uh, does a lot of really interesting work um, up in Wisconsin, uh, wrote in, could you say a few things, um, you know, about how you see strengthening local civic infrastructure and how this relates to a bigger picture? Parker, um, can you take yourself off, off mute and ask your questions about the linkage between We the People and the U.S. Congress and, and what this means to you? Are you there? You would need to press uh, star six. Well, if you come on, let us know, because I think that's a really big big picture idea as a lot of people are moving um, to this grassroots idea. Parker, are you there? Are, yeah, go ahead. Are you there? I don't think that was him. Okay. Yeah, somehow I don't either. Well, we'll move. Unmuting is hash six, not star six. Star six is to mute. Hash six is to unmute. Oh, hash six. I'm sorry. So hash, thank you. So it would be the hash six to unmute. So Parker, if you get there, in the, in the meantime, um, since this, this did come up, um, a lot of people have something like nextdoor.com or Funport Forum. I know it is in Vermont. It's an online application, so neighborhoods um, can uh, have uh, connections to each other online. Uh, have any of you used uh, something like that online, and what role does it play in civic infrastructure? I think, Trish, do you use it up there in Newport? It is not easily um 
um, adopted up here in Newport because there's concern about um, privacy issues. Uh-huh. Uh, because in order to register for um, front porch forum, you have to identify where you are, you know, what your street is. And so um, where it is working very well in Vermont are in larger areas such as Burlington or even Middlesex, you know, where folks are, um, you know, working on some neighborhood issues and that kind of thing. But I don't know if it's entirely the conservative nature of folks up here, but it has not. We've been encouraging it at the community commons meetings, and we don't have very many takers. Okay. Any Anybody else been using some kind of online forum? Well, in this one, go ahead, Janice. I was going to say, Chicago is the home of every block that recently closed, and it didn't work very well in other cities, but it really took off in Chicago. And one of the things that people really missed when it ended was the connections that they developed online. It just resulted in a lot in the real world. There was a farmer's market that was created. Um, there was a block club that came out of it. But there, there was something to say to having this other way of communicating with your neighbors about local issues that wasn't face-to-face, that we have a big – actually, we have a big hole now in Chicago because we don't have every block and different groups trying to figure out how to fill it. Hmm. Okay. Facebook. Okay. Facebook and I, I have – well, I have a couple of suggestions on that, Fran. Go ahead. Just Andy, and just oh, a couple, couple of ideas, and I would actually love to hear if there's anyone on the phone that – is using a local online forum um, that's having some success with it. But the two other ones that I would recommend looking into um, are edemocracy.org, which basically sets up local listservs that have an online component. So it's really simple. Um, There's not a requirement for geolocating, so people don't have to put in their exact address. Um, And that's being used uh, increasingly in the Midwest, and then Civic Commons, actually it's theciviccommons.org, is something that anybody can use as well, and it, it works really well on a local basis, but it might take some more upfront work to get um, a critical mass of people in your community involved in that. Okay, as far as in Newport, as far as online, has been our Facebook and Twitter uh, channels have been uh, fairly effective. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, Is that Parker? No, this is Larry in Austin. I was just going to add another uh, sort of local online example if, if it would be helpful. Go ahead, Yeah, no, we use um, the Civic Ideas platform built by uh, Granicus that actually was adapted from a local Austin company that developed it for us. And our platform is called speakupaustin.org. And you have to create an account to be part of it. And it's a combination site where you can um, – Post discussions, you can do sort of crowdsourcing of ideas, and you can do uh, surveys, among other things. And so we're really using it as kind of a, a hub site for us to be able to consistently engage. It's really an integral part of the civic infrastructure we've built here, and I'm really pleased at the, the 2,500 or so registered users that we've been able to, um, you know, to amass, and it's a really diverse pool of, of Austinites. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, and that's a great Great. Mind Mixer is another good one, and Peak Democracy is a is a good one too. Um, those are definitely more involved platforms. Is someone tracking these on the Google document? Yes. Great. Yeah, there are notes are being taken on the on the Google Doc, and the resources are being will will be there. Okay. 
It's uh, under resting for resources? Oh, making it happen. It's under making it happen. Um, okay, thanks so much. Good thing I have some help here. Um, we, uh, I'd like to move on to, to some of the stickier issues um, about when, when there are uh, some real uh, conflicts going on, when there's polarization. Uh, Joyce from Wisconsin talks about this. If you're on the line and want to get on, or John um, from Montana, where there have been uh, some, some very, the major polarization and how do you get those factions to work together um, in a better way? Um, and so if, if Joyce or John want to just speak to that briefly and ask their questions by um, doing hash six, we would welcome your call. Otherwise, I'm going to turn it over to um, one of our guests to, to talk about how to bridge very polarized uh, communities. Uh, I'm on the line. I'm on the line, but I don't have anything extra to add to my question other than to how to get people to maintain. Uh, we, we were able to get a few um, events for uh, there was a unified course, but it didn't last. Hmm. Okay, so in the cultures were just so different between management and labor. This is this is around uh, public transportation. Right. Um, so that the, you're you're saying that the leadership was so um, was polarized. So um, there really wasn't somebody that galvanized everyone, and it didn't last very long. The the efforts that you made. So right. are there are there some suggestions about how to keep this going, how to keep working on something and, and begin to bridge these divides. Janice? Mm -hmm. Sandy? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just a complex question, actually. There's so many, so many possibilities. What I can speak to is some of the, um, some of the great methods that work in this arena that you might already be aware of, but, um, the Public Conversations Project does a great job uh, bridging divides, and and it, it really is long-term work. Um, it's not something that, that is easy to do. It, it takes um, some real concerted long-term effort, but some of their um, the principles that they use in their work are to um, actually interview people from both sides uh, separately before you actually bring them together to engage them and you interview them separately to find out what their perspective is, what language they're comfortable with, because a lot of times once groups that are really at odds get together, they just um, unknowingly use language that, <laughs> that offends each other and, and causes um, bigger gaps. Um, another process that is um, fantastic for these kinds of issues are, is sustained dialogue. Um, the International Institute for Sustained Dialogue does a great job at this, and what they do is they, they bring people together over a, a long period of time um, to get to know each other, get to know each other's stories, and, and really work through the issues. Um, what are some other examples? Um, you know, Living Room Conversations is doing some good work in, in this area of just polarizing, uh, bringing polarized groups together. Um, a lot of NCDD members are working in this area. We're actually having a, a conference call next week about um, bridging the, the, the left-blue divide, in case anyone wants to join that. But um, I could just 
kind of go on and on about the, the processes that are out there, and it's a matter of really spending spending the time um, allowing people to to share their stories, to uh, build that understanding that needs to take place between um, groups that that don't really see each other as as being um, being the same or on the same level. Um, Janice, I don't know if you or Trish have something you well, want to add. I actually have. I don't know that much about it, but I have a specific recommendation related to transportation planning. The Center for Neighborhood Technology, which is located in Chicago, developed a process called Bridging the Gap that integrates technology with um, in-person meetings to help transportation planners and community members understand each other's perspective. So I would recommend that maybe you look at the Center for Neighborhood Technology website into Bridging the Gap. That's the right. to transportation. And, and I also wanted to mention that in the last call, which is online, it was called Bridging Divides, and we really talked a lot about how to uh, create these bridges between um, uh, groups that, that are not uh, getting along. So that's, that might be another reference that you want to look into. Um, we're, uh, we're about 12 minutes out, so I'd like to jump to relationships and models, movements, and issues. Um, and in, in this, uh, Catherine from Virginia, and also Peter is interested in this, um, in sharing examples of ways that communities can engage artists and the arts in building and strengthening civic infrastructure. And in what way are they an essential, or are they an essential and foundational element of civic infrastructure? Any thoughts on, on, uh, on that, and I'm sorry, I don't know who would be more involved in that, Trish or Sandy or? I'd actually, this is Janice, I'd actually like to speak to that because right. in Chicago, the arts community actually provides one of the strongest elements of our civic infrastructure. Um, some of the best public dialogue on community issues happens around the arts. So we have things like films followed by discussions. We have a community theater group that sources their stories from the community, and then after the plays, they have an audience discussion of the issues. We also have some really interesting arts and dialogue spaces where they'll do visual arts exhibits and then bring in people to talk about the issues that they raise. And some of these have taken old abandoned buildings and repurposed them, so it's also good, interesting use of public spaces. Um, a lot of our support here for this sort of work comes from the Illinois Humanities Council, and they even offer free spaces for public dialogue in our cultural center. Um, we also have a lot of cultural museums that are sponsoring public dialogues on community issues as part of becoming centers for civic engagement. So it's a really dynamic, active, important part of our civic infrastructure here in Chicago. And that takes me to, to going back a little bit to a question uh, from Jean Vermont, which is in the uh, Making It Happen. But she's, she's talking about the need for more community spaces for entertainment, gathering, and displaying and that they have several beautiful old buildings that are privately owned, but they're falling into disrepair. And she says it seems there should be a way to make these two ends meet, but the amount of money needed to refurbish the buildings, not to mention buying them, has been completely daunting. Any suggestions uh, to Jean about um, how to go about possibly refurbishing the, the buildings, kind of a community land trust, or maybe you have some other ideas? For those public spaces, mm -hmm. or is the that not struggle, the work? Go ahead. The, the struggle and the tension is um, that these are privately owned, and you know, certainly operating as the 
the downtown organization, you know, the landlords are one of our toughest uh, nuts to crack as far as, you know, being able to um, to use, you know, different properties or convert or whatever. However, it is, that said, it, it really goes to, you know, having more than one voice, uh, being able to, you know, to address this. Um, we haven't had any measurable success necessarily with that. Um, we have had different um, landlords who on their own have, um, you know, taken some steps. And uh, we, we do have um, one of our downtown restaurants was um, a community um, investment group that came together to convert this space into a really nice um, Thai restaurant downtown. So um, it's, again, you know, really sharing that kind of information, sharing examples, sharing, you know, either the Powell, Wyoming experience, you know, on their mercantile or, you know, stealing good ideas from West Virginia or wherever is to, you know, um, to help um, some folks understand that it has been done before and how do you massage it to make it work in your place. Thank you, Trish. I'd like to go back because if uh, we couldn't get Parker Palmer on the line, I, I don't want to ignore his question, which was, could you say a few things about how you see the strengthening of local civic infrastructure directly and indirectly related to the renewal of American democracy on a larger scale? That is the linkage between kind of we the people and the U.S. Congress. Uh, Sandy, do you want to take a stab at that? Yeah, um, I will try. I really was hoping that Parker Palmer would be able to answer some questions because I think he'd be, he'd be uh, equipped to do that. But I would say that um, I think what's happening as we strengthen local civic infrastructure, as we bring more people together to influence decision making, we're, we're basically empowering them to make um, to make decisions about things that are important to them. And it's, it's shifting people's expectations of government and their role with government. Um, and one of the things I wonder is, you know, that can happen so much more easily on the local level. You know, people can uh, talk to their local uh, policymakers and, and build relationships with them. And, and policymakers are, are on the local level are more likely to um, be influenced by citizens organizing and, and by the citizen voice and, and the kind of publicity we can get from bringing citizens together to talk about issues. Um, as you get on a larger and larger scale in this field, it gets more and more difficult to actually influence um, policymakers and influence policy. And I wonder if people are kind of starting to expect to have more of a voice uh, locally and in the process of doing that, some, getting somewhat more disillusioned nationally, feeling like they have less of a voice nationally. Uh, and that is something I'm wondering, not something I have a lot of um, confidence in that statement. So I wonder if, if anyone would like to respond to that. I'd love to hear other perspectives on that. Anybody? Well, I think I, I'm hoping we all contemplate that and you respond on the Google Doc. I think it's a really interesting question. We're, we're running closer to the end, so I'm just going to talk about a few wrapping up things, and then I'm going to come back to our guests to ask them to respond to one thing that people can do to start taking action or um, uh, 
you know, make, make the most of civic infrastructure when we get back. So I want to um, thank everybody. Please, I, I'd love everybody to get on the Google Doc, add your thoughts, add your wisdom um, uh, to that document so we can all benefit from all of your, uh, your work and your experience. The podcast and the call notes will be emailed around and also posted online. And uh, next time, just so you know, on June 20th, we'll have another call. It will start earlier. It will start at 3.30 Eastern Standard Time. Uh, and for that call, we'll be talking about how to spread the word about community design projects. This call happens to be a part of an ongoing capacity building series that's part of our partnership with the Citizens Institute on Rural Design, so we're kind of partnering with them on this call. And while it's geared to support those communities in this design program, it's going to give any town tips on how to develop a communications plan, craft message, and work with the, uh, the press to generate interest and participation in community projects. So if you have interest in learning more about communications and how to use it to get more people to participate, we hope that you join that call on June 20th. And we'll be sending more information out about that uh, and about, about that call next month. Um, so I'd like to come back to our guests. I want to start with uh, Trish. And where would you say people can, what, what's one step they can take right off of that to improve civic infrastructure in their town? Something that was brought up earlier um, by Sandy, and I believe Janice echoed it as well, you need to understand that you're in this for the long term. Um, and so the communications have to be constant, consistent, um, and clear. Um, and, you know, being able to, um, you know, make sure that you're, um, in our case, our city mayor, um, as well as city manager and city council folks, have been participating more and more and more in our community meetings. This has been critical uh, for them, for their understanding, but certainly for the connection of community directly with uh, with them because we have a very poor turnout at city council meetings. So we hope that will be increasing. Terrific. Thank you, Trish. And, and Janice, what are your thoughts? Um, I try to definitely identify who else in your area might be interested in this topic and start just having conversations about what civic life could look like in your local area. I actually found that a lot of people had better connections nationally within their field than locally with people who are interested in civic infrastructure. So I'd say start talking locally and imagining locally what you could create together. Okay. And Sandy? Well, I guess my piece of advice would be to start connecting people. Um, in particular, start a program, a tr start a facilitation training program. And, and not only train facilitators, but make sure that others can access those facilitators once you've trained them. I think that's a missing piece in a lot of communities. People will train facilitators and then lose track of them. It's just use them for one event and then they have no way of tapping back into them or uh, and other organizations don't know how to tap back into them. So create something that that is more of, you know, an online listserv or something that people can access so that they can benefit from the infrastructure you're creating when you train facilitators in doing these processes. Okay. Thank you. We're all so concise with that. I, I will go back to one question 
Um, David from Virginia was interested. He's, he's a local practitioner um, and a national asset-based community development trainer, education, and coach, and he continues to seek ways that he can earn a living um, uh, from his practitioner and training work. You all are in the business. Do you have thoughts about increasing revenue for doing what you love to do? No, but I'm open to suggestions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, it's a big question. It's not not one that hasn't been asked before, for sure. And I think part of it is that we need to all collectively value what facilitators bring to the table. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of volunteer facilitator gigs, and facilitators ought to be um, compensated for the work that they do, and we ought to hold ourselves uh, up to that standard as much as we possibly can. Also, I want to mention, not to be self-promotional, but we have a listserv called Making a Living, uh, which was great. It was named that because initially it was a conversation among practitioners and dialogue and deliberation about this question. How do you make a living in this work? And it's now a jobs list, and we share everything we find out about, you know, facilitator gigs and real, you know, full-time positions and part-time positions. So people can email me if they want to get on that listserv. And that's uh, Sandy, yeah, go, go ahead quickly. We will. Yeah, I know, I know we're almost out of time. It's Larry Schooler. I, I just wanted to make the point that when I present at conferences, I always talk about sort of the costs of, of not doing this well, of, of not meaningfully engaging the public, and of not utilizing, you know, skilled professionals and facilitators to do this. There just are so many uncalculated costs from everything from lawsuits challenging public policy that was done without the public to recall elections to the like, and so... You know, sometimes I think it's a matter of showing people how it's a much more sound investment to proactively engage than it would be to, uh, to have to react and, and spend untold millions uh, cleaning up the mess. Terrific, Larry. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you all for participating. Thank you so much to Sandy Heyerbacher, uh, Trish Sears, and Janice Thompson for being our very special guest today. And uh, good luck with strengthening your civic infrastructure. It's terrific. We hope that you uh, uh, join us next time. This is Fran Stoddard signing off from the Orton Family Foundation. Take care, y'all. Hello, and welcome to the Community Matters Civic Infrastructure on the Ground Conference Call. This call explores civic infrastructure, the opportunities, activities, and arenas, both online and face-to-face, -face, that allow people to connect with each other solve problems, make decisions, and celebrate community. You'll be joining the call partway in. This is the question and answer portion after speakers have already given introductions. You'll be hearing from Sandy Heyerbacher of NCDD, Patricia Sears of Newport City Renaissance Corporation, and Janice Thompson, a public engagement consultant working in Chicago, along with other participants on the call. Enjoy!